Hello again. <laughs> Good to see you again. It's been a while. Thank you, worship uh, team, for helping us to sing that truth. The, the passage that we're in this morning is one of the most remarkable passages in all the New Testament. And where it is heading next week, it ends with what we have just sung in this song. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, because we are who we are because of his doing. We did not bring ourselves to the cross. He's the one who has done that. So in the end, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in Christ, for it is the only thing that we have to hang on to. So we are going to, this morning, uh, be looking at verses 18 through 25. Before we uh, open our Bibles and stand and read, I would like you to join with me as we pray together. Father, we boast in you and in you alone in the cross of Christ, for we have done nothing to bring ourselves to you, because in us there is no good thing that dwells. And apart from you, we can do nothing. We were lost, we were dead. But God, but you, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved, and you raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places. Father, we're grateful that you have done it and not we ourselves. We pray, Father, that you would help us this morning as we we look at these incredible truths about the cross of Christ, that you would anchor our souls and our very lives to this truth this morning for the sake of your glory. So teach us now. We know that your spirit is the one who teaches. Pray that all other things will get out of the way and that your word would come to us in power by the ministry of your spirit this morning. To your glory, we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our scripture reading this morning is verses 18 through 25. And we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and the training in righteousness. And this is the time in which we know that God speaks and we want him to speak to us rather than me speaking to you. So would you stand as we listen quite attentively to God's word to us? First Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse 18. The word of God. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called of God, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. We could just go home. (laughs) Honestly, we could and ponder and ponder. But we will proceed. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when we began the introduction to 1 Corinthians, I gave you a quote off the cuff from uh, James Moffat, a great Scottish theologian, who said this, the church was in the world as it had to be, but the world was in the church as it ought not to be. And when Moffat said that, it was part of his introduction to the entire book of Corinthians, saying that this is the issue in Corinth. 
This is the issue that Paul is dealing with in our present passage. It's the issue that Paul is dealing with throughout the book that the world has, that the church has allowed the world to seep into the church. In fact, in verse 18 through the end of chapter 4, Paul is going to continue the very same thing over and over and over again. He's addressing divisions in the church. And these slogans of these groups, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, they demonstrate that the church in Corinth had let this worldly wisdom settle into their church. And they valued that human wisdom greater than God's wisdom. They failed to understand or had forgotten altogether their proper place of the gospel because the gospel is their true wisdom and their power. So right off the bat, verses 18 through 19, we see this. The cross of Christ is a two-edged sword. The gospel of Christ, the, the cross of Christ, the preaching of the cross of Christ cuts two ways. And what it does is it divides humanity. It divides people into two groups, those who are saved and those who are unsaved. It divides. That seems odd, doesn't it? Because he, isn't he addressing division in the church? The division, the division of the cross of Christ seems to be an odd way to continue an argument about unity, but this is exactly what Paul has in mind. The gospel has, has divided people into two groups, two categories, the saved and the unsaved, and the Corinthians are in the, the saved category. Why then, if they're in this category, would they adopt the attitudes, the philosophy of the unsaved world? Why indeed? which is exactly what they have done by elevating human wisdom above God's wisdom and dividing into these little factions, the silliness of what they're doing. So we see in verse 18, and we're going to include verse 17 just right off the bat where we ended last week. 17 and 18 say this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void, Stated in the positive, Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel with the cross at its center so that it would be effective. He was sent to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Baptism is a response to the gospel. It is, it is the gospel message. We'll, we'll just talk about that in a minute here. But he was sent to preach the gospel, and the response to that is baptism. And the problem is they were, uh, they were adopting worldly wisdom and the, they, were, they were now uh, adopting worldly tactics to teach the gospel, as happens in many churches these days. And what happens is that the effectiveness of the gospel is diminished when it is preached in reliance upon human methods, human wisdom, Human eloquence, human personalities, when we preach based upon those things, the gospel is diminished because, because all those things draw attention to themselves and they take the attention away from the simplicity of the message of the cross of Christ and they, they, they turn it to themselves. Now, we have to do something here at Valley Bible Church. We use uh, the Internet. We use slides. We use technology. We do the best we can at uh, preaching and teaching and music and all the stuff that we do. We have to do something, and all that we do is to be done to the best of our ability because it's for him, because he deserves the best that we have to offer. But when we give to him the best that we have to offer, we're not trusting in the best that we have to offer. We're trusting in him and the message that he brings through us by faith. And Paul now kind of pivots to this. He explains in verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What, what is the word of the cross? 
Literally, it is the, the words of the cross, the message of the cross. So we, we have to, right off the bat, define the cross that he's talking about. He's not talking about just this, this wooden cross or the symbol of the cross that we just talk about. The cross, the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. No, what does it mean? What was the event at the cross? What happened at the cross? Paul defines it in verse 23. Christ crucified. When we use the cross, it's shorthand for Christ crucified, and even Christ crucified is shorthand for the full-orbed meaning of the gospel. In chapter 15, Paul is going to address the gospel, and he says, I, this is the gospel. Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And then he addresses resurrection. I don't think that the Corinthians had an issue with the content of the gospel, but he talks about the resurrection in their life. And so here, when he says the word of the cross is, is foolishness, the word of the cross is the, is the full gospel. Christ crucified is that the Son of God came to earth, lived a sinless life, was despised and rejected by men, he was crucified as a sacrifice for sins of the world, and he rose again on the third day. When Paul says the word of the cross, that's what he's talking about, all of that. That does not mean, by the way, that our only message is reduced to the atonement, that our only message is reduced to how we come to Christ in salvation. Because Paul is right now, and throughout the rest of the book, is going to apply the cross of, the cross, the cross of Christ to their divisions, to their own calling, to his apostleship, to immorality in the church, to uh, lawsuits in the church, to marriage, to eating food, sacrifice, to idols to worship in the church, to love in the church, to spiritual gifts, even to the resurrection as it relates to them. And in the end, in chapter 16, the cross of Christ is related to giving. So the cross of Christ is the ground. That's where we start all of our teaching. It's all embedded in the cross of Christ, and it works out from there. And this is the center of gravity for all that we do. Christ crucified, Son of God, come to earth, sinless, despised, rejected, crucified, risen again. That's our message, and it applies to every aspect of life. But what he is saying here is they are divided from the world by the gospel. Therefore, why should they adopt the, the means and the methods and the worldly uh, philosophy of the gospel. So we see two things. The cross of Christ. The cross is foolishness to those who are in a state of ruin. The unsaved. And the cross is God's power to those who are in a state of grace. The saved. You see how it cuts down and it divides humanity into these two categories. When he says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing is a very strong word. That means those who are being destroyed and in this context, it means those who are being, their life is a life of ruin because they're in a state of depravity still. They are unsaved. But, he says, to us who are being saved right now, it is the power of God. Cross is God's power to those of us who are in this state of grace that cannot be changed. We are the saved. So for you, believer... You have been saved when you came to the cross. One day you will be fully saved when you're in his presence. But right now, as he says, literally, you are being saved right now. Christ is keeping you in your salvation. The blood of Christ continually cleanses you from all unrighteousness and nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You're being saved and you are being held in his hands. Then he goes on to explain this in verse 19. He says, for it is written, I will destroy. It's the same word that's used of those who are, peri those who are perishing, the word perishing. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 
This is a, a quote of uh, Isaiah 29, verse 14. And this is the first of six Old Testament quotes between here and the end of chapter 3 that Paul is going to use to make his case, which means these truths have existed all along. This is not something that just came to the fore in the New Testament when Jesus appeared on the scene. He's not saying anything that's new. In fact, you know, the, in Proverbs it says, there is a way that seems right to, to a man, but the end of that is what? Death. Man has always thought that he's smarter than God. Man has always came up with a, a better way of doing things than God's way. And the Corinthians are falling into that. And he uses the, um, this, this quote in Isaiah that uh, Isaiah and much of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah is hammering and hammering and hammering the Jews to return and to repent. They've been given Moses and the, uh, and the law. They've been given the prophets and even Isaiah, the great prophet, preaching to them, come back, repent. Restore yourself. But verse 13, right before that, in Isaiah 29, says, Because this people draw near me with their words and honor me with their lip service. Jesus said that in the New Testament. But they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Even though they had been given the law and the prophets and the way to, to, to worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, eh, let's come up with some new ways. Human traditions. And they were clinging to human traditions instead of the word of God delivered to them. Where does tradition come from? Man. It's all man-made. And when we elevate tradition, what that happens is it devalues the word of God. And that is exactly what's happening in Corinth. They're elevating worldly wisdom and devaluing God's word. Isaiah 29, verse 14 then. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous. And he's not speaking in a good way. And the wisdom of the wise men will perish. And the discernment of the discerning men will be concealed. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, well, who sees? And who knows us? You turn things around, he says. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? He is the potter, we are the clay. Or do you say, well, I'm equal with God? I mean, we're all equal, right? We're Americans, right? That what is made would say to its maker, he didn't make me. Do you say to God, you didn't make me? The world does. We made ourselves. We came from nothing. That's the other worldview. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he doesn't understand anything. And that is what God has been dealing with the nation of Israel for centuries throughout all the Old Testament is the same thing. We know better than you. We will do things our way. And Isaiah is warning them that they're going to be disciplined. They are going to be disciplined for their pride. They have foolishly put their trust in human tradition. They think that they're smarter than God. And why? You know what they always do? They always ended up adopting the ways, the philosophies, the lifestyles of the surrounding nations. Just as in Corinth. And then Israel ended up being disciplined by God by those very nations. Nothing has changed. It's true in the church today that we adopt the philosophies the thinking, the methods of the world around us. So here in 1 Corinthians, the result of those who forsake God and put their hope and their trust in human reasoning and traditions is they will be perishing. Anyone who does this, they have in fact concluded that God's wisdom is weak and foolish and that they have a better idea and that they're smarter than God. Boy, that happens today. Years ago, 
happens in the church. Years ago, we were visiting family in California, and I found out about a, um, a seminar that was going to be held close by, and so I signed up for it as a one-day seminar, Church Growth Seminar. The guy who began, the, sem- the first thing he said was this, expository preaching is dead. It went downhill from there. I just turned it off. People don't listen anymore to the teaching of God's word, he said. Uh, it doesn't work. It's not, it's not practical. We, we need to come up with new ways to communicate. Expository preaching is the only way we will communicate, okay? And when we stop it, you slap me. Give me a spiritual dope slap, all right? Because I'll be a spiritual dope at that point. We have new ideas on how to do church. God's word is outdated and insufficient. People wouldn't say that, but that's what they're, they're doing. There's always new, something new, always something better. So here's what we can, we can say about all this. We can expect that the world will not understand the cross. You can expect that the world will not understand the cross and the world will not understand you. Okay? You are a fool. You are foolish for bringing this, believing in this stuff. The world will not understand it. They do not have the ability to understand it. There are two kinds of people in this world, those who bow the knee at the cross of Christ and those who scoff. That's all there is. And we're going to see more in chapter 2 where Paul tells us why people don't understand the Bible. We tell them, Jesus loves you, he died for you, and they just... They don't have the spiritual equipment because they're dead. So we can expect that the world will not understand the cross and the gospel. But on the other side, we can fully accept that the message of Christ crucified is going to change people's lives. Amen to that? How many of you have had your lives changed by the message of Christ crucified? Every one of us who are believers. We are not who we used to be. We were dead and now we are alive. How can there not be some change in our lives? So the cross of Christ cuts two ways to bring division, but unity for those of us who are in, who are over here and saved. Second of all, the cross of Christ exposes the bankruptcy of worldly wisdom. When the cross of Christ is is properly understood, when it is properly preached, we see that worldly wisdom is impotent. There's nothing out there. There's nothing good out there. There's nothing that is sufficient for our salvation. And this is what Paul is getting at. The wisdom and the power of the world are actually foolish and weak even though the world will view us and the cross as foolish and weak. It's the other way around. So he says in verse 20, where is the wise man? Where is the philosopher? Where is he now? Where's the intellect? Where's the intellectual? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where is the, uh, the, the, the apologist who's going to, to uh, put God in his place? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer to that is yes. And how does God make foolish the wisdom of the world? Through the cross of Christ. Through Christ crucified in no other way. And then he explains in verse 21. It seems like a a difficult uh, sentence to understand, but it's not that hard. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased to the foolishness, quote unquote, of the message preached to save those who believe us. Notice he said, where is the debater of this age? Where are the, where's the, the wise man of this age? Where's the, where's the scholar of this age? Where's the debater of this age? The, the wisdom of the world lasts this long. It's of this age. From the beginning of time till Christ comes back and does away with it all. It's about this long. 
In fact, it's even a lot shorter than that because God's wisdom uh, existed in eternity past, right? In the beginning was the word, the logos, the wisdom, the very mind of God in Christ Jesus. And once it's all said and done here on this earth, the wisdom of God will continue because it is eternal. And so all the wisdom and all the philosophies of this world, the world is passing away. Christian, we have to recognize that. We cannot fall for it over and over and over again. Yet we do. Paul says, In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. This was God's plan. It was God's plan that he would demonstrate that people can't come to him on their own power. So two things here. The cross reveals the powerlessness of human effort to know God. That's the first part of that sentence. Second of all, the cross reveals God's sovereign grace as sufficient to those who believe. He has made himself unknowable by human wisdom. That's, that's what he says here. God made it that way. That was the plan. Man cannot go know God by his, in his own means. The wisdom of the world can never achieve salvation through knowledge, through religion, through intellect, through doing good things, changing your way, stopping swearing, whatever it may be. You can't get there through this, through humanity. And this is God's plan to highlight the very foolishness of mankind, to demonstrate how foolish the wisdom of the world is. It doesn't accomplish a wit of of anything, a hill of beans when it comes to knowing God. But the cross reveals God's sovereign grace when he says God was well pleased. This we're talking about sovereignty here. This was God was pleased to make it happen. And he reveals his sovereign grace. It's all that there is. It's all that you need. It's the only way that you will come to believe is through him making it known to you. So since the world couldn't come to know him by its own worldly wisdom, philosophy, arguments, reasoning, methods, God was pleased to choose another method, which the world views as foolish, that we can know him. He made himself known only through the crucified Christ. It's impossible for the world to come to know him on its own terms. It's impossible for the world to come to know God on its own merits. It's impossible for the world to come to know God through its own methods and devices and whatever. Can't happen. Salvation is of the Lord, and that's the end of it. Leon Morris said, People do not receive salvation by exercising wisdom. Salvation comes to those who believe. So, message of the cross divides. The cross of Christ exposes that bankruptcy, that, that impotence, that powerlessness of human, humankind to, to somehow know God. It can't happen. Only God can do that through his grace. And thirdly, The cross of Christ is the embodiment of God's power and wisdom. The cross of Christ is the embodiment of God's power and wisdom. And by embodiment, we mean that it is the incarnation of God's wisdom. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh. God with us. God Emmanuel. And so it says... Verse 22, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. You see, Jews and Gentiles both rejected the cross as foolish. But they both end up into the same category, perishing. It's not wise, is it? But they've rejected God's way. Jews asked for signs. We saw that in in John's gospel. uh, Jesus did lots of signs, lots of miracles. And people were following him around as a miracle worker because they wanted to see him do tricks with fresh fish and bread, you know, during juggling or whatever it may be. And they wanted him to do signs, but they were never satisfied. Now, were they? Just like the nation Israel was never satisfied. When you think of all that God had done in history with Israel, 
He gave them Moses, gave them the law. He gave them the the exodus through signs and wonders and miracles and that great story of their history. He brings them the Messiah and it's never enough. Never enough. And the Greeks search for wisdom. This is referring to the, the philosophies of Greece at that time. Part of their, their culture, they're just sitting around reasoning and, and elevating the mind and human, human reasoning. In Acts 17, 21, when Paul visited Mars Hill, it says, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Things haven't changed, have they? And when churches adopt that, and indeed the church has, hey, there's a, there's a new conference. There's a new book. There's a new philosophy of ministry. There's a new way of doing church. saw uh, an advertisement this week for you know, a church that says, use church as a verb. We need to church differently. It's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Letting this stuff come into to, to the world. And they always wanted to hear something new. And the church is always looking for something new. What's the latest book? Who's the latest um, guest preacher? Who is, what are the latest ministry methods that, that we need to glom on to? And the church is easily distracted. How many of you have dogs? And, and you throw a ball or the, 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 the toy, whatever it has, and they go, whoo. And they come back and you throw it this way and they, whoo. Church is like a, a, a dog sometimes. We're attracted by bright and shiny things and, and there's a, something new and we just go that way. We need to be centered in the center of gravity, the cross of Christ. That's where our heads should be. Always looking for something new. Paul would say of worldly wisdom in 2 Timothy 3.7, 2 Timothy 3.7, these people are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. More and more learning, filling up notebooks, conference books, conference schedules, all sorts of things. I'm not saying those things are wrong. I'm just saying that when we put our trust in those things, we better evaluate them by the wisdom of God. This is truly the spirit of the age, both of these things. The Jews are searching for power. The Greeks are searching for wisdom. Today, people say, well, if God would just do a miracle for me, then I would believe in him. I want to see some powerful thing. And then the world is always searching for wisdom. I'll just Google it. Because if I Google it right now, I'll know the truth. And the truth will set me free. Sorry, it will not. Not that truth. We have all these avenues of learning and always coming, always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Social media, YouTube, blogs, whatever. cross of Christ, Christ crucified. Christ crucified is despised as foolish to the world. The world looks at the cross and Christ crucified and they despises it. Because, he says, We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Christ crucified is despised. To Jews, Christ crucified is a contradiction in terms. Because Christ means Messiah. Messiah crucified. Wait, no, you don't crucify a Messiah according to the Jews. He's the the king. He comes back and and he slays his enemies. He's not slain by his enemies. And so for the Jews, that's a very contradiction in terms. It's a stumbling block. It's the word scandal on. We get the word scandal from it. A scandal is uh, something, this disgraceful event that results in public outrage. And that's what happened with Jesus. He claims to be the Messiah. They arrested him, for goodness sakes. They stripped him of his clothes. They made him carry his own cross. He was crucified with criminals. It's a disgrace. It's a scandal. And they trip over it. Messiah would mean power 
and royalty and triumph. Crucifixion? Weakness. Disgrace. Defeat. So for the Jews, the very idea of the Messiah being crucified, they were repulsed by it. They despised the idea. It was the opposite of what they expected. And so they became hostile to it. And they look at the cross with derision and disdain. The very thing that God has chosen to save them, they look at with disdain. So since they categorically reject the crucifixion of a Messiah, they won't even entertain the idea of resurrection. Why would I even think about that? Because he couldn't be the Messiah because he was crucified. Obviously, you're not telling the truth about this either. You have to remember, the symbol of Christianity was a, probably well over a hundred years before be, the cross became the symbol of Christianity. At this time, it wasn't the symbol of Christianity, it was the symbol of execution. And so it's easy for us to have crosses around our neck and up here and in the foyer and talk about the cross in that way. But at that time, this would have been an offense to Jews to, to show them a cross scandalized. But into Gentiles, Christ crucified is just the, the foolishness of weakness. Greek wisdom elevated man to, you know, a lofty heights. A God being put to death by mere mortals? That can't happen. How foolish is that? The guy was executed. And you're telling me that is God? There's a well-known, what is called a graffito in Rome. And it depicts this, and it's, you know, just like we do graffiti today, and it was been uncovered. And it depicts this man in front of a cross. And on the cross is a figure, but on the, in place of the head is the head of a jackass. And the caption, the graffiti says, Alexamenos worships his God. Alex worships his God, a jackass crucified on a cross. That's how they viewed it. Foolish. Despised. Some people today see it the same way. Because they're ungenerate. And who can understand this? We'll see again in chapter 2. God can help them. So, in verses 24 and 25... Christ unites Jew and Gentile in, in power, in wisdom. Christ unites us. He divides us from the world, but he unites Jew and Gentile. Those Jews and Gentiles over, over here who are scoffing and, and, and reject the cross, they end in the bucket of the perishing. But those who, who believe in Christ, they end up as one with fellow Jews and Gentiles. Verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the embodiment, Christ is, of God's power and wisdom. Those who are called, we see that word called again. Paul used it of himself in, in, in chapter 1, verse 1. He used it of, of them. They were saints by calling. He used it in verse 9. They were called into fellowship. And here he is once again calling the effectual call of salvation. God is the one who calls us. And what does he do? Jews and Greeks, the cross divides, but it also unites Jew and Greek and male and female and black and white and Hispanic and, and people of every tribe and tro, tro, uh, tongue and nation. God makes us one. Rich and poor, slave and free man. Powerful and unpowerful. He makes us one. That's the power of the cross. And the cross reveals that God is wiser and stronger than mankind. When he says in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's not saying in any sense that God is, is kind of foolish and he's kind of strong. It's, he's tongue in cheek. The so-called foolishness of God, the so-called um, weakness of God. He is infinite. 
He possesses wisdom and power infinitely. And in Christ, all the, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he possesses all wisdom and power. And so to mankind, it's like your puny wisdom and, and strength. Nothing compared to our God as evidenced by Christ crucified. Let me just show you to put together for you from verse 18, 21, and 23, how we are in this passage. It's the cross of Christ is God's power and wisdom for those who are being saved, verse 18, for those who believe, verse 21, to those who are the called, verse 23. That's us in the passage. This is God's power. We're being saved because we believed, because he called us. Salvation is of the Lord. Some words of application here, okay? The wisdom of the world will always threaten the purity of the gospel and the wisdom of the world will always threaten the purity of the church. How? Let me just list some things for you. How does the church, how is the church threatened? By adopting the methods of the world. Pragmatism. We just go with what works. Hey, the latest thing, there's this new book that's out. And if you do this in your church, you're going to draw more people. Or we had 90 people who got saved and were baptized because they did all the final steps of this, this project. And if you do those, that's going to happen. When we adopt what works, pragmatism, we are, we are eschewing and letting go of what is true, which is the gospel of Christ. Doesn't mean we don't do something. Yes, we have to have means and methods by which we do things. But our hope and our trust is always in the message and its power. Second of all, by feigning authenticity. The desire to be authentic, which is usually achieved by being fake, right? Being authentic is like being humble, isn't it? You just know it when you see it. But you don't advertise it. When you say, we're the most humble church in the valley, what just happened? We're a group of authentic people. What does that even mean? What has God called us to? He has called us to faithfulness, not authenticity. If we're faithful, yes, we'll be authentic and people will recognize it. But we're called to faithfulness, and that's one of the things that the cross is going to be applied to in chapter 4. Paul is going to speak directly to that. But we are called to faithfulness. Third, by adopting a Corinthian attitude. Corinthian attitude is, well, just live and let live. Being proud of our tolerance of others who are in sin because we're loving. We don't make judgment calls on people's lifestyles whether it's sexual sin or any other sin we're about love and let's just live and let live and let's just show grace to everybody and just let god deal with them that's a corinthian attitude that's what the corinthians had had adopted the wisdom of the world which is the wisdom of today which says hey you just everybody can do what everybody wants to do and you just need to tolerate to not tolerate them is intolerance, of course. Fourth, by watering down the gospel. By making the gospel so simple that it's just about God's love. God loves you, and if you love him back, you get to go to heaven. That's not the gospel. You know what else is not the gospel, Sunday school teachers? Ask Jesus into your heart. That's not the gospel. It sounds simple. Maybe a children can understand it. Actually, maybe they can't because that, there's that whole idea of, well, what do you mean he's going to come into my heart? That doesn't make any sense. That is not the gospel. We have just seen the gospel. It is the cross. And it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we must cut it straight. Do you really want people to know God? Do you really want people to come into a, a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? 
then you must not be afraid of offending people with the gospel because the Bible predicts that they will be. We just preach the gospel, and we all do. That's what, what he says in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. And I think he's talking to the Corinthians. We, every one of us have the message of the gospel that we are to preach to the world. And we let God deal with the results. It's always up to him. The last one there is by minimizing doctrine. People say, well, doctrine divides. It might, if it's an important doctrine. And people are not interested in doctrine like they're not interested in expository preaching. We don't want to scare people with doctrines like hell. We want people to feel good. We want them to to enjoy their church experience. We want them to leave here encouraged and happy. Being convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We don't want people to feel like they're judged. What did Jesus say in John? We, we went through it not many months ago. We are convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is the only path to peace with God. There is no other way. The conviction of God. So why would churches do this? Why would churches follow those worldly ways? Because they fear man rather than God. Because we want people to like us, right? We don't want to offend anybody. We want people to be happy and we want people to come back. And because of misguided intentions, because truly we really love people and we want to to love our community. And so we have this, uh, this motivation of love, but there's no clarity of the truth of the gospel. And that gets lost when we just uh, have a Corinthian attitude, well, I love you, and yeah, we'll pray for you, even though people need to repent. And because we become proud and self-sufficient. Like the Corinthians, we think we've outgrown the simple gospel. I mean, it's, kind of, it's getting kind of stale, isn't it? And Bible, cross, blood, Jesus. Like them, we look for something that is more sophisticated, something that is more practical, something that is more attractive, something that is more fun. Let's have fun in ministry, right? We can have fun in ministry. But we must fear God first and preach his message, not the message of the world. If we fear God, we will do as he commanded us. And the cross will be central to all we do. So what's at stake in this? What's at stake in this? It means the survival of the church. The church at large will survive because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But Valley Bible Church needs to survive to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, which means we cannot and must not adopt the worldly philosophy that is always surrounding us. We cannot let the philosophy and wisdom of the world to seep into Valley Bible Church. And when that happens, let us know. Hold us accountable. It means being found faithful when Christ returns. That's what's at stake. It means His glory and not ours. That's what's at stake. It is a matter of life and death. That's what's at stake. Heaven and hell are at stake today in this room and every week. When we preach Christ crucified. That's what's at stake. Eternal things. It means living out his greatest joy because of his blessings. Because of our obedience. And that's the path to true joy. The conclusion. Why would we adopt the wisdom of the world and reject the wisdom of God. Why indeed? Why would we divide ourselves according to human devices? If we are united by the cross, which is the wisdom and the power of God, and we have left the world and we've been called to be his children, why in God's name would we go back and act as if we were in the world? No. The bread and the cup, I want you to prepare those. Because this is our weekly declaration of the cross of Christ, isn't it? 
every week we declare this, the cross of Christ. Christ crucified, Christ coming again, Christ living for us every week. (laughs) Sorry, I'm spilling juice all over my Bible, and it's a new one. And if I were a real pro, I wouldn't even have mentioned that. Christ crucified. This is an object lesson for us every week. If you are a believer in Christ and part of the family of God, come to the table recognizing this is the real strength. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul had prayed to the Lord several times to take away this thing that was in his life. We're not sure what it is. And he, that is Jesus, because Jesus answered him and said, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, I am strong. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones, to him belong. We are weak, but he is strong. Father, we thank you for this foolishness that we hold in our hand. Thank you for this weakness that we hold in our hands. These truths that we believe that your power is seen in the person of Christ in his death and resurrection. And gladly as one we partake together in communion with you, in fellowship with one another, in the name of Christ. Amen. And he said... Do this in remembrance of me.